The time is now. Volume 2, Episode 35. This is Employment Law Now, and I am your host, Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. Last year, since I know you are all avid listeners of this Employment Law Now podcast, last year you will remember that I did an episode that was focused on the country of California. Yes, I said it, the country of California, and the specific meal and rest breaks that were unique to that jurisdiction. Now, I referred to it, and I'm not the only one who refers to it as the country of California, um, because that's what it has seemed like over the years. California has had some crazy rules and crazy regulations, particularly in the labor and employment world, uh, that are extremely unique and differ uh, widely from most other states and jurisdictions around the country. But so today I move to the other coast and I devote the bulk of this episode uh, to what is fast becoming the country of New York and the unique response specifically that New York State and now New York City as well have had to the hashtag MeToo movement, particularly when it comes to significant policy and employment training requirements imposed on really employers of all sizes that have operations, employees in New York State, in New York City. So if you have any operations in New York, if you have any employees in New York, or if you're planning on having operations or employees in New York, this is a great episode to listen to. Maybe even pull over and take some notes if you're driving while listening to this. But but wait, before you shut me off because you're not interested really in an episode on New York, even if you don't have operations or employees in New York, This may still be a great episode to listen to because what I'm talking about when it comes to the responses to the Me Too movement, particularly in the areas of policies and training, this is not just unique to the country of New York. This is becoming part of a national trend. So if it hasn't come to your jurisdiction, if these regulations, if these requirements that I'm going to be discussing in this episode haven't come to you yet, there's a good chance that they will at some point, if not in 2018, maybe in 2019. And so this is a good chance to hear really what's being done uh, in the leading jurisdictions for these kinds of initiatives. So we'll get to that New York moment in a moment. I did, however, want to start with a general labor and employment issue of real significance as there's a real development, and this is our Trending Now segment for today. Uh, You know, you continue to hear a lot about the joint employer issue from all different places, and again, for any of you listening who have been living under a rock for the past three or four years, you know that the joint employer issue is one where an employee or groups of employees try to hold two or more companies responsible as joint employers, as co-employers, for the same underlying liability, whether it's for discrimination or harassment, whether it's for wage and hour issues. 
And I've talked on a few episodes over the last year and a half uh, about the joint employer issue and how we're starting to see federal agencies trying to get in line now with emerging case law on this issue. You know, like so many other employment law issues, this joint employer one is one where we are frustrated still because there seem to be so many standards, much like, you know, how do you define an independent contractor when you're deciding whether an individual is an employee or an independent contractor, and you see so many different standards um, from a federal standpoint, from all different states, and even the local jurisdictions that are getting involved. Well, on the joint employer issue, there's that same frustration where there seems to be so many different standards, so many rules here, but we are starting to see uh, some of the government agencies try to become a little more consistent with what some of the courts are doing out there. And uh, as it's done now in a couple of issues, the new Republican-led National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, is back in the news on this issue. I mean, it'd be incredible if we count up how many episodes I have spent talking for at least one issue uh, about the NLRB, but here we go. And for those of you who are NLRB geeks and have followed what this particular federal board has done... You'll remember that uh, in 2015, the NLRB issued a decision uh, referred to as the Browning-Ferris decision, and it dramatically expanded the joint employer definition at the time. So uh, under the Browning-Ferris rule, essentially uh, two companies would be considered joint employers solely uh, with reserved indirect control where one only reserved the right to have some sort of nebulous indirect control over the other, and under that much looser standard, you were finding um, that more franchisors and other kinds of independent companies were being held responsible for the acts of another company. So now the NLRB, and this is really interesting because they're doing it uh, not through a, a decision in a case, but they're engaging in rulemaking, federal rulemaking. The uh, NLRB, this majority, uh, this Republican-led um, NLRB, just issued a proposed rule uh, on September 14th, 2018, and that will be open for public comment for a 60-day period until November 13, 2018. And the proposed rule goes back to what things were like before Browning-Ferris where in order to find joint employer liability, you would have to show some substantial direct and immediate control that was in fact asserted over another entity. Not sort of this loose indirect control or, you know, did one company reserve the right to engage in some controlling activity, blah, blah, blah. There now will need to be substantial direct and immediate control that is in fact asserted over another entity. After the comment period ends in the middle of November, and assuming there is no extension of that uh, period, the NLRB will issue a final rule on this, and it will impact uh, significantly uh, this whole area of joint employer, certainly uh, for issues covered by the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board. <clears throat> so we here at ELN Central will keep you posted on that. Uh, on a related front, still in the joint employer liability arena. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has put its hat in the ring on the joint employer test, not for purposes of the NLRA, but for purposes of Title VII and uh, discrimination and harassment cases. For those of you keeping score at home, the case is uh, Fry versus Hotel Coleman. 
And here, the Seventh Circuit um, dealt with the joint employer liability issue in the same way and using the same test now that it does to distinguish employees and independent contractors. <clears throat> that said, uh, the test does not have one single factor as being dispositive, but the Seventh Circuit says that you should generally look at whether one entity exercised sufficient control, in fact, over the employee who's bringing the claims. Again, not some reservation of rights, not some indirect kind of control, whether the one entity that's um, allegedly the joint employer exercise sufficient control, in fact, over that employee and that employee's work environment. So an interesting uh, case, I think, uh, and we'll see if that reasoning and if that new test for Title VII purposes is followed by other courts, um, but I thought you'd be interested in that, and we will certainly keep you posted on uh, all joint employer developments because, like with so many that I've been talking about lately, this is not going to go away, and we are going to continue to see a lot of um, action on the joint employer front. And for those of you who are subject to those kinds of claims, maybe you're a franchisor, um, maybe you uh, have relationships with other companies, Companies that you believe are independent for whatever reason um, continue to keep your eyes and ears open because this issue as I said is not going to go away and so with that said we get to the primary purpose of this very special episode does it get more corny than this As I said, California used to be referred to, and still is in many circles, its own country. Uh, New York, as I also said a few minutes ago, is making some serious inroads there. And I can spend hours, multiple podcast episodes, um, talking about this, um, particularly what New York State and New York City have done as their response to the Me Too movement. But I do want to take this uh, opportunity to highlight some of the significant changes that have come to employers who have operations and employees in New York State and New York City. And what's really critical as I'm going to get to in a couple of minutes, uh, it used to be that certainly when you're talking about federal law, that's easy. But even with New York State and New York City discrimination and harassment law, um, you used to only have to worry about it, small employers, if you had four or more employees. Now, as I'm about to tell you, there are some instances now where even if you have one employee in New York State, hopefully you continue to listen to this episode. So, there are five areas that I want to touch on very uh, briefly in terms of uh, New York's expanding laws in this area uh, and what's been going on in 2018 over the last couple of months and what you need to be thinking about over the remaining few months of 2018 as we move into a new year. First, um, again, uh, New York has been a leading jurisdiction on responding to the Me Too movement, and there are several ways that they have done that. The first deals with confidentiality provisions that many companies have in their settlements, in their settlement agreements of lawsuits uh, that have been filed or lawsuits that are threatened to be filed. And so um, what New York State has done 
uh, as of this past July 11, 2018, settlement agreements that involve claims of sexual harassment may not include confidentiality provisions that prevent the disclosure of the underlying facts and circumstances of the uh, sexual harassment claim unless three elements are met. The first one is that the condition of confidentiality <clears throat> excuse me, must be the preference of the complainant, of the employee who is complaining. Number two, that preference has to be expressly memorialized in a written agreement that's signed by all parties. And three, this is real interesting, the employee has to be provided a non-waivable 21-day period to consider the terms of that agreement that contains the non-disclosure provision. And then after signing the agreement, the employee has to be given seven days to revoke the agreement if he or she wants to do that. What does that sound like? Does that sound familiar to you? Well, for those of you who have been dealing with age discrimination claims, particularly under the Federal uh, Age Discrimination and Employment Act, that does sound familiar because those claims, when it comes to a release and a settlement agreement, have that same 21 and 7 day period requirement for those kinds of claims. And here we are now seeing it in New York State for agreements of uh, settling sexual harassment claims. It has to be a preferred uh, provision by the complaining party. The agreement has to specifically say that it's the preference of the complaining party. Uh, and the employee has to be given 21 days to consider the agreement and 7 days to revoke after signing it. Significant new requirements. What else we got here as a result of the Me Too movement? Well, New York State has also now prohibited mandatory arbitration of sexual harassment claims. Now, I have said this uh, when I have done presentations live and on webinars, and I've said this in the podcast also, and I could talk about this too for hours. Uh, I've got a significant concern when it comes to these kinds of laws focusing solely on sexual harassment because, you know, we've all been spending the last few years as counsel to employers, uh, advising companies and uh, helping with training for companies where we have said, look, sexual harassment is a significant issue, unfortunately still. It is something that has not gone away and we still need to address it, unfortunately. But it is also not just about sexual harassment. There are other forms of harassment, whether it be age harassment, disability harassment, religious harassment, that employees um, need to understand are similarly prohibited in the workplace. And in fact, the kinds of trainings that we've been focusing on when it comes to client trainings is this notion of cultural sensitivity, a much broader concept. And so one concern I do have is that all of these laws responding to the Me Too movement by focusing solely on sexual harassment, well, does that um, inappropriately elevate sexual harassment issues to the detriment of victims of other forms of harassment? Again, whether it's age harassment victims, national origin, disability, race harassment victims. Um, but I digress, and it's an interesting issue and, and perhaps one that we'll get into in a future episode. But in any way, going back to... Um, the uh, mandatory arbitration. So July 11th was significant here because uh, as of July 11th, 2018, employers with four or more employees in New York are prohibited from incorporating some mandatory pre-dispute arbitration clause to resolve sexual harassment claims. Uh, mandatory arbitration agreements that were entered into prior to July 11th are not affected. Um, and um, 
mandatory arbitration provisions for claims other than sexual harassment are not affected by this. It's agreements after July 11, 2018 for pre-dispute mandatory arbitration of sexual harassment. Those are the kinds that New York State uh, has now prohibited. Next, we have significantly expanded sexual harassment protections in New York to non-employees. Right? I mean, it used to be that only employees, only, only employees who were the victims of sexual harassment um, were protected under New York state law. Now, as of April 12, 2018, if you didn't know this already, put your ear closer to the speaker. As of April 12, 2018, it is now unlawful in New York for an employer to permit sexual harassment of non-employees in the workplace. Non-employees could include contractors, subcontractors, vendors, consultants, basically any person who is providing some sort of service pursuant to a contract in the workplace. And an employer, your company, may be liable to those non-employees if the company knew or should have known about the alleged harassment of that non-employee and failed to take immediate and appropriate corrective action. State contractors, you're in this too. This is now one looking forward. Um, effective this coming January 1st, 2019, uh, if you are part of uh, state government work bidding processes, all bidders are required to certify that they have adopted a sexual harassment prevention policy and that they conduct annual trainings to all employees regarding sexual harassment. Here's an interesting one, continuing to go backwards now. Effective as of April 12th, 2018, any public employee who has been found personally liable for intentional wrongdoing related to a claim of sexual harassment must now reimburse the government for any judgment that was paid on the employee's behalf. Right? We're not talking about the private sector for this rule yet, but who knows? That could be coming down the pike. But again, as of April 12th of this year, 2018, a public employee who has been found personally liable for intentional wrongdoing related to a claim of sexual harassment must reimburse the government for any judgment paid on his or her behalf. Perhaps the fundamental purpose of that is to put more of a stake uh, into the alleged harasser. Uh, so that this is not just, well, I can get away with it because at the end of the day, I'm not going to be sued. At the end of the day, this is just going to be, you know, my public employer uh, who's going to be on the wrong end of a lawsuit. Not under this new reimbursement rule. And so here I come to the last bucket of significant responses to the Me Too movement in New York State and New York City. Um, I think if you're still listening to this episode, this is really what you wanted to hear about. And I can't tell you how many calls I've been getting from companies um, asking questions about this. Uh, it's the new New York State and New York City requirements for sexual harassment policies and sexual harassment training. So, first on the policy front, um, in New York State, uh, employers, all employers now, regardless of their size, it's not just four or more, if you have one employee, that's enough, but effective October 9th, 2018, in just a couple of weeks, October 9th, 2018, all employers, regardless of size, must adopt a sexual harassment prevention policy. Now, the new law contains all kinds of minimum requirements for the policy. 
But so, for example, the policy has to prohibit sexual harassment, has to provide examples of conduct that would constitute sexual harassment. It's also got to provide information concerning remedies that are available under state and federal law. Not all of your policies do that currently, I'd be willing to bet. You also have to specifically include a procedure for the timely and confidential investigation of complaints. A lot of you do investigations, but not a lot of you provide the procedure in your written policies. And here's a big one. You now also must provide a standard complaint form. You must create a complaint form that employees can use if they have a complaint of sexual harassment. Employers must provide this policy in writing to all of its employees. The uh, New York State Department of Labor has actually released a model policy. You can go on their website or you can certainly reach out to me and I'd be happy to help you with that. Um, but they've released a model policy that employers can use uh, and that was even open to public comment. And I'm going to get into the public comment in a moment once I go through the training requirements because these are significant as well. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the new training requirements that New York State and New York City uh, are imposing on employers. And let's sort of lay this side by side uh, so that you get a sense of the similarities and the differences between what New York State and what New York City are imposing. First, New York State, and here is the real big problem. And when you talk about administrative burdens and nightmares, this is it right here. So under New York State's requirements for um, providing sexual harassment training. That requirement is effective October 9th, 2018. And listen carefully, the deadline to train your employees is January 1st, 2019. So forget about the Thanksgiving holiday, forget about the month of December typically being a wash and the end of December with the holiday season and New Year's. Between October 9th, 2018 and January 1st, 2019, really a three-month, a little less than three-month period, you must have all of your employees in New York trained in a way that meets the New York State requirements. Now, you can say that you did some sort of training um, a month ago over the summer earlier in 2018, but if it doesn't meet at least the minimum requirements under the new New York State law, you have to do it again for all of your employees. New York City gives you a little bit more of a lag time. Uh, the New York City training requirements are not effective until next April, April 1st, 2019. And then you have a full year. You have until April 1st, 2020 to have your employees trained. Um, for purposes of New York State, as I've said a couple of times now, uh, all of your employees, including part-time employees, uh, even if an employee works just one day, all of your employees in New York State must receive sexual harassment training that complies with New York State's requirements. In terms of any differing New York City requirements, only those employers with 15 or more employees must train their employees. Um, are contractors covered? Well, uh, I mentioned uh, that beginning on January 1, 2019, uh, from a New York State standpoint, um, all contractors who are bidding on New York State contract, uh, contracts have to certify that they do provide annual sexual harassment training to all employees. Uh, the New York City law, uh, it doesn't explicitly require uh, contractors to get the sexual harassment training. Um, but that's really uh, a, a New York State requirement at this point. How often do we have to provide the training? Well, it's got to be provided annually under both 
New York State and New York City law every year. What about for new employees? Here there's a little bit of a difference between New York State and New York City. Under New York State law, new employees must be trained within 30 days of their start date. New York City law says that new employees uh, have to receive the training uh, within 90 days of their hire. So again, New York City being a little bit more generous with their time. Uh, and that's for, under New York City law, new employees who work 80 or more hours per year um, on a full or a part-time basis, or are expected to do so, obviously. Um, they must, under New York City law, receive the training within 90 days of their hire, again, in contrast to New York State law, which requires it within 30 days of their hire. So what kind of training are we talking about? Well, first, it's got to be interactive. It's got to be interactive. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that there has to be a live person doing the training in person with your employees. Talk about burden. That would certainly be a burden for uh, companies to have to uh, have someone there live, and, and even more of a burden if you've got to do it every time you hire a new employee, and certainly within 30 or 90 days of that. But what the training must be under both New York State and New York City law, it must be interactive. It must be interactive. So that means that there has to be some form of employee participation. And what New York State requires from a participation and an interactive uh, standpoint, uh, you have to either have a live trainer available during the session to answer questions, or you can have a web-based um, training where questions are asked of the employees as part of the program and they're required to answer them so that's some form of interaction um, or you can accommodate questions that are asked by employees during the session either if not by a live person uh, there in person but by a live webinar uh, or the New York State uh, rules say that you can require feedback from employees about the training and the materials presented um, similarly, New York City does not require that there be somebody live in person there for all of your employees at the time, um, but it has to be interactive, which New York City defines as participatory. Uh, online training, again, may suffice under New York City law if it is interactive. And uh, one of the things that I did want to mention, and I touched on it a moment ago, at least with regard to New York State law, um, you have had... Um, model trainings that the New York State um, Department of Labor uh, have provided on its website. In fact, it's got its own website now dealing with sexual harassment policy and sexual harassment training requirements. Um, and they had a whole bunch of public comments uh, um, received over a public comment period that ended on September 12, 2018. They've received hundreds of comments from businesses and business organizations. The bulk of those comments, I believe, uh, are related to sort of questions about the, the interactive nature of the training and certainly that October 9th to January 1st uh, period within which they've got to train all employees. And so we'll see as we're sitting here toward the end of September, um, we'll see in the next few days, the next couple of weeks, uh, certainly as we get close to October 9th, hopefully, whether New York State comes out with some tweaked requirements on any of those issues. And uh, I will let you know uh, if that is the case. But for now, um, we can only go by what we can go by, and that is what New York State and New York City have published so far. So the training's got to be interactive under both New York State and New York City. Uh, a few elements, at a minimum, 
have to be in these trainings according to New York State and New York City law. First, you obviously have to define sexual harassment. It's got to be a, a definition that's consistent uh, with guidance that was issued by the New York State Department of Labor. It's got to include examples of conduct that would constitute unlawful sexual harassment. Uh, in terms of applicable laws, uh, New York State is requiring some more specificity. There's got to be information containing the actual federal and state statutory provisions concerning sexual harassment and what remedies are available to aggrieved individuals. Uh, under New York City law, you also have to have a specific statement that sexual harassment is also uh, unlawful under state and federal law. There's got to be an element to your training that deals with reporting and complaint procedures. Under state law, you have to provide information concerning the employee's rights um, to complain and all available forums for bringing and adjudicating complaints. New York City has something a little bit more specific than that. The training's got to inform employees of the internal complaint procedure that's available uh, to address sexual harassment claims. But here's a real issue, I think, for a lot of companies. Under New York City law, you also have to describe the actual complaint process that is available through the New York City Commission on Human Rights, the New York State Division of Human Rights, and the EEOC, including contact information for all those agencies. Wait, what? I, You know, employers, companies... I'm sure don't have much of a problem if they have to telling employees in their policies and in their training um, what the complaint procedures are that are available to them but now you're requiring companies actually make it easier and give employees the contact information to go speak to someone and file a complaint at the EEOC or the State Division of Human Rights or the New York City Commission uh, that is um, something isn't it and it's uh something that's not making companies uh, overly excited about the new new york city law but there it is you also have to have some component of your training dealing with retaliation um you also not for new york state law but for new york city law have to deal with this concept of bystander intervention you have to provide information concerning bystander intervention uh, including resources that explain how to engage in bystander intervention in other words if you are someone who's not necessarily being sexually harassed but you are a bystander and you see someone else being sexually harassed uh, there has to be uh, some means for you to address that uh, through procedures established by the company you also have to go through with your training uh, issues relating to supervisor duties, management duties. So in a lot of respects, many times you are going to have separate trainings, uh, both for your rank-and-file employees and then a separate one for your supervisors and managers um, because New York State requires that you address supervisor conduct and any additional responsibilities that supervisors have. And New York City also requires that the training address specific responsibilities of supervisors and managers to prevent sexual harassment and retaliation. Um, and there are some components of that that you might not want to hear your uh, have your non-management employees uh, hear. So, look, I, I'm not expecting you, I don't know if you're at your desk, if you're driving, if you're on a bike, jogging in the kitchen, um, I don't expect you to be jotting down and um, 
remembering every single component that I just said to you, but I think there's a real big takeaway here, and that is there are some significant new rules uh, in the books in New York State and New York City, particularly when it comes to training that you must do for your employees. For New York State purposes, all of your employees, regardless of how many you have, and as of now, by January 1st, 2019, for New York City, it's 15 or more employees to be subject to it, and you have a little bit more time um, between April 1st, 2019 and April 1st, 2020. Um, but it's real important that you not just uh, bring out your old sexual harassment trainings, your old workplace trainings, and by old, again, I mean even just this past summer, if they don't comply with the minimum requirements of the new New York State and New York City laws. It's important uh, that you comply with these new rules, um, because at the end of the day, uh, I think the premise is that it's going to help you. Hopefully, it'll help you cut down on uh, litigation costs, on defense attorney costs, um, because hopefully your employees, your managers, your supervisors, everyone up the chain will have a better idea as to what inappropriate and unlawful conduct is uh, and how to prevent it and how to establish and maintain workplaces that are safe and healthy for those working in it. So that's what we got uh, to talk to you about today. I'm real happy that uh, you stayed with the episode. I hope you found this useful and informative. Um, please don't stop listening because there's going to be a lot more here. New York State may be tweaking its rules. New York City is expected, like New York State did, New York City is expected to publish uh, some model trainings, model uh, sexual harassment policies in the coming months. Uh, so keep your eyes and ears open because like everything else in employment law, this too will continue to develop. Um, but that's all the time we've got for today. Uh, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive. Heat.